So today we are going to look at the Peters, First and Second Peter, and also Jude. Um, I mentioned last week that some weeks we'll take multiple books. There may be a book of the Bible that we are going to spend more than one week on. Uh, but what we're trying to do right now is sort of take a very high-level overview of the entire New Testament, taking a book or a couple a week. And what I hope to do is to give you sort of the outline, the general thrust of each of those letters, perhaps some cues as to how to interpret that as you read, so that when you go to read, and I've, I've encouraged you last week to go back and read Revelation. I don't know how many of you did that, but this week when we're done talking and you spend time this week reading, go back and read that, those letters, First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude. I hope that after today you have sort of a general context in which to go and read that and begin to understand. There are a few things that are difficult um, and you do need some contextual information in order to make sense, particularly of Second Peter and Jude. And so if you go to read those this week and you can't understand it or you don't have a good study Bible that explains it, as I've always said, please get a hold of me. I'm happy to help walk you through that. I want to deal with Second Peter and Jude just briefly. They are both very short letters. Jude, as a matter of fact, doesn't even have chapters. It's one page in most Bibles. And the reason those two go together is they are largely the same letter. And if you put them next to each other, there are portions that are actually almost verbatim, one for one. And some scholars think that Jude probably was written first, and Second Peter may have used that as a, as a model to address the same issues in the churches to which he was writing. There are others that think that there may have been in the background a sermon or another letter that was popular that both of these writers may have inherited and had in the back of their mind. And like is so often when we talk about our faith and things about God, we have phrases that have worked their way into our understanding of God, and we sort of go to the back of our mind and we grab those. It's, it's possible that both of these writers had done that. They had been hearing these messages for long enough that when they went to write their letters, they're both recalling those. But they are very similar. And both of those letters deal with external, or I'm sorry, internal threats to the church. And they're writing about false teachers. And at this time, we think these are written at the end of the first century, so the 90s, about the same time that Revelation was written. And we talked about that last week. And we've talked a number of times about the fact that the Roman persecution was present. At this point, the, the emperor at the time was persecuting Christians both in Rome and Asia Minor, which we'll get to that in a minute as far as a map is to show you where that is. But these churches were undergoing that persecution, some of them. They were being martyred, killed, some of, some of them, not all of them, certainly. But to the extent that they weren't, they were certainly, as Christians, outcasts. They were looked down upon, made to feel less than human, certainly not part of the Roman society. And so one of the things that was going on is these, as there was persecution, there was also, which are external threats, there were also internal threats that were starting to pop up. And two of them that were major at this time were Marcion. He's a guy who basically said that the Old Testament God looks nothing like the New Testament God. The New Testament God is love and mercy. The Old Testament God is wrath and uh, justice and a heavy-handed God. Those aren't the same thing. They're two different gods. And so our Bible, our canon, ought to be Luke, Paul, and then a couple, a handful of the other letters. And he said, that's, that's the whole New Testament. And the, the church at the time said, no, 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 wait, wait, that's not true. And so they fought back against him and argued that, no, it's one God through the whole thing. It's one whole story, as we've talked about before. And so Marcionism gained some traction. And so the early church fathers and leaders were having to refute Marcion and others like him who would say, we only want this piece of the witness that God has given us as opposed to the whole thing. And then the other thing that was sort of cropping up were, were the Gnostics. And this was a, 
There are, there are different forms of Gnosticism. You've heard of the Gnostic Gospels, and these are things that are, are out there. There were other Gospels, other stories that were cropping up, and what they were doing was basically coming up with their own ideas and then going and taking bits and pieces of Scripture to support them. So, for example, there's one group called the Valentinians who created this whole myth- mythology of gods and lesser gods, and they used as the names of their gods, things like peace and faith and all of the virtues that we find in the Bible talked about a savior. They talked about uh, the word. And so they used the language of the church in an attempt to lure people away. Because at this time, especially in the Greco-Roman world, most people are not literate. So they don't have the text in front of them. So if you come talking to them and using the same language that they've heard, how do they know that you're not telling them the truth? And so Gnosticism started to spring up within the church across the, the empire. And that was the other internal threat. And so Second Peter and Jude are dealing specifically with false teachers and this sort of thing as it's cropping up within the church. And so as you go to read those two letters, keep that in the back of your mind that these things are swirling and they're cropping up. And a lot of the early church theology and writing that we have is in response to that. So the church develops itself, its theology defines who it is in response to these threats, these theological threats. And that's a lot of what, again, the letters of Second Peter and Jude are about. Today, we're going to spend most of our time in First Peter. It is the longer of the three letters. It is chock full of good instruction and theology. This is the map that I said we we're going to reference. Uh, this is modern-day Turkey right here. And at the time, this was Asia Minor. So Patmos is right out in the ocean here. That was where John was writing Revelation from that we studied last week. This area right here where the seven churches are, this is the same area. It's called Asia Asia Minor to which 2 Peter is writing. The area of Galatia is also there. So when when Paul writes to the Galatians, that's the area geographically that, that he's addressing. And second, or First Peter, unlike Second Peter and Jude, is dealing with external threats. And he is teaching his church, trying to instruct his churches on how to deal with the world, how to relate to the world. And he speaks of, of persecution. As you read that letter, he's going to talk about persecution. And the persecution, as we mentioned, takes the form of martyrdom, sort of actual, you know, being thrown into the lion's persecution, but also the everyday run-of-the-mill rejection of Christians within the Roman culture, because as we're going to see, the church was instructed and understood themselves to be different, and they withdrew from a lot of society as a result, and that caused a lot of social strife and problems. Um, so they were definitely outcasts and often made, made fun of. And so if you remember from the first week that I was with you, we, we actually looked at Second Peter, and we talked about the spiritual house and the fact that we are built in, we are individual blocks and built into that church, and it was within the church, within the body of Christ in which God lives. That's in Second Peter. And so what we're going to deal with today is what does that church look like in the world? How does that church, that spiritual house, us, the family of God, relate to the world around us? And, and I'm going to just stop right there and say today is one of those days. I, I mean, a lot of times I wear flip-flops, right? They're comfortable in summer. I mean, one is a little cooler, but two. Today's the day we're going to get our toes stepped on. So I've covered my toes, right? And so just get ready. I, I, what we're going to talk about today may rub some of you the wrong way. And I, and I know that it rubs me the wrong way a lot of times too. Uh, but one of the things we need to do is be honest about what the scripture says and wrestle with it and be willing to be confronted, convicted and say, okay, well, maybe I'm not, or we're not right about everything. And so this is one of those days. And so I just would plead with you, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> I'm trying to faithfully present to you what Peter's telling the church. First Peter is perhaps one of the core letters that we have 
written to the church that talks about how to be in the world. It pulls together a lot of the theology of Paul and the other New Testament writers and puts it into one letter and says, okay, this is how you are to live in the world, interact with the culture around you. And so it's crucial that we understand it. It is an understanding that we have largely, as the American church in particular, lost. And so I want to ask us to wrestle with it and, and ask how, how do we hear this and how do we become this in our world today? Let's go ahead and read our passage from today. As I mentioned, it's certainly from 1 Peter. It is chapter 2. It's verses 10 or 11 through 12. And this comes right after the section that we looked at that first week about the spiritual house. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So what is Peter talking about here? Let's first take those first words. He encourages us to live as aliens and exiles. And as he opens his letter, as a matter of fact, in verse 1-1, he addresses his letters to the exiles. What is, it, what is an exile? Sorry? A king who's left his country. It's, it's basically anybody who's, been, who's left his country, correct? Who's been kicked out. John, for example, was exiled to Patmos, right? So he was kicked out. He was no longer part of his, his homeland, right? And so when, when John, or when Peter here says, I urge you to live as aliens and exiles, what, what's another word for alien? We use this word in our, in our culture today. An immigrant, a foreigner, right? So he's, he's addressing the church as exiles, as strangers, foreigners in, in a foreign land, right? And foreigners and exiles at this time were common. They, they were people who were not part of a particular area that would move there or spend time there, whether they're fleeing persecution or for whatever reason they've moved. And at this time, foreigners did not participate in the customs of the host, we're going to call it the host country or host culture. And so sometimes that's because of legality. Of course, if you know, we have somebody who's emigrated to the, to the United States, if they're not citizens, there's certain things that they can't participate according to law, but there are also times when they simply didn't want to. And this is the case often with the church, that they saw something in the Roman culture that they just understood they could not participate. They understood that they were different in some way, and it meant not participating in emperor worship, idol worship, or a lot of the festivals and things that went on around that, that particular segment of the culture. And so what Peter is encouraging the church to understand is that they exist at a distance from the larger culture. Not completely separated, but there is a, a sort of a gulf there that they can't cross. Right? The church is not Rome. Rome is not the church. Okay? And he goes on in chapter 3 to talk about baptism, and he does so in a way that makes, makes us understand that as we are baptized, what happens in baptism in part is that we are literally, to be born again is to be born out of that culture into the family of God. So there's a movement that happens out of the popular culture into this new culture. And if we go back to that first week, remember Peter called us a, a, a new race, a, a new nation, a priestly nation, right? That, that we are setting something up that's new, different, and distinct from the wider world around us that, that we came out of, okay? That God's house is in exile, is foreign to the larger culture in which it exists, and so we are foreigners, strangers, 
and exiles in our own land. Um, another way that gets talked about is that we are sojourners, travelers on our way to a new home passing through. And that, that gives us obviously a new status, a new relationship to the world around us, and it forces us to ask questions. The truth is that not everything about the world around us is bad. Right? We can look in the world and we can look at people that are not in the church and say, that's a good person, they did a good thing. And so the questions that the church has to start to ask is, what of that host culture can we hold on to? What is good and true and loving and merciful? And what do we need to set aside and not be part of? And so every culture is different. And so as the church exists in different parts of the world and at different times, the answers to those questions are necessarily different. And they are questions that we have to constantly be asking and remembering that there is overlap and so we are not just saying everything about the ter- world is terrible. Let's go off and, you know, create a commune and just segregate ourselves completely, right? That's not what P- Peter's instructing or calling his church to do. We must, he, he encourages his church, we must become in some way an alternative community within the larger world. And that, that sort of begs a question and says, if, if we aren't any different than the world around us, then what's, what's the point, right? If we don't look any different, if we don't act any different, if we don't understand the purpose of life and the purpose of the world any differently than, you know, John Doe walking down the street, well, then what's the, what's the point? Why be the church if the church isn't any different? And that, that has implications even within evangelism. When you talk to someone about being a Christian, if you can't say, hey, it's, it's different and it's better, and this is why you would want to do something like this, they're not going to say yes, right? We have to have some sort of difference in order to even be Uh, begin to become attractive to the world around us. And as we talk about that difference, it is important, and Peter asks us in in a number of different ways, to not think of it as we are not that, right? There there are two ways to define yourself. You can define yourself either by what you are against or by what you are for. And Peter is trying very hard to get his church to understand that they are defined by Christ, that their identity is derivative of Christ, the Gospels, the teaching of Jesus, and not necessarily by saying, oh, we're not that, we're not Roman, we're not Greek, we're not that. And there's a particular reason for that. We call this a positive rather than a negative difference, right? And, and one of the reasons for that is that as soon as we say we're, we are different from them and we are not that, you set up conflict, Right? If you look at people who are not Christians and go, I can't be like you, I'm not like you, you're, you set up this conflict that says either the way we resolve that is either you're going to become like me or I'm going to have to just reject you. And ultimately, over the course of the church's history, we've seen this play out and it, it always leads to violence in one, one, some, some way or the other. Sometimes that's taking up arms and actual violence. Sometimes it's just words and pushing away and, and, and there's, a, there's another kind of sort of animosity and hatred that is bred when we define ourselves in opposition to the, the world. What Peter is asking us to do is don't do that. Define yourself and understand your identity by Christ. Now, that does necessarily mean that there is a difference, right? We're not saying there's not a difference, but the moment that we are focusing on the other, the thing that we are not, rather than that which we are, we set up that conflict and, and we live into that conflict and all it does is breed more conflict and strife and, and anger and hatred between us and the world. If instead we can stand firm and fast by identifying ourselves 
with Jesus, well then we are different necessarily, but we're not so worried about the fact that they aren't us. We're worried about the fact that we are Jesus. Does that difference make sense to you? And then we don't necessarily have that conflict. We can say we become firm, strong in our identity, and they're no longer a threat to our identity. What happens, and, and we see a lot in our culture, is we get scared and worried that they don't agree with us. They're passing laws that don't coincide with a Christian ethic, which is not something we shouldn't care about. I'm not saying we don't care about that. But we become threatened by that, right? We see that as a direct threat to us. That doesn't, and I said this two weeks ago, what they do doesn't change the church. What they do doesn't change Jesus or what he did or the truth of the gospel. And so if we can, we can understand that and, and realize that truth is firm, it's not moving, it is Jesus, it is God, and we just rest there, well, then we can engage culture a different way. And we do that as Peter will instruct us in verse 16. He says, as servants of God, live as free people. And so what identifying ourselves in Christ, being rooted in Christ allows us to do is not to engage in conflict, but rather be firm in our identity and then enter back into the world as servants. And so our interaction with the world becomes one of love and service, having been firmly rooted in the love and service of God, rather than trying to push and mold and argue them into becoming like us. So what, what exactly does it look like? And I would encourage, and I think it becomes obvious as soon as you say it, well, it's, it's the model of Christ himself, right? If we think about Christ and we study intently the early church and how they understood their role in the world in light of Christ, Christ didn't, I can't think of no place where Christ tries to mold or reshape or affect the culture around him from a position of power. He goes in front of Pontius Pilate and he's not arguing with Pilate that what Pilate's doing is wrong. Right? He's not trying to lobby Rome or the emperor to change the laws of the land. He is firmly and strongly himself, and it is his life and the way that he interacts and serves the people around him that becomes the witness, and it is that witness that then informs and affects the culture. And the early church happens the same way. They're not out in the streets picketing and rioting and stabbing people like the, the Sicarii that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the Jewish revolutionaries were. We, we looked at the history of Judaism that took up violence and took up this us versus them approach. And we saw what happened. They got utterly decimated. It ends in violence. And for them, it ended in slaughter. What Christ does and the early church, early church does is they understand them differently, right? They understand themselves and their purpose to live a different life and it is the lived out life in front of the culture that then becomes compelling. We become an alternate community, right? We become living examples. Peter says in our scripture today that they're going to call you evildoers because of the way that you act. And this happened. As the Roman culture looked at the church, the church meetings were secret. Other people were not allowed to come into those meetings if you weren't uh, part of the community. If we came to the time of the, the common meal and which would include communion and some worship, um, if you were not baptized, you would be kicked out. And so they, the Roman society looked at the church and they were taking in all these orphans and then they were talking about taking bread and blood and they started to think, well, are they cannibals, right? And so they looked at what the church was doing and they accused them of all these sort of evil, terrible things. And what Peter is saying is, 
what's going to happen is they will, they will persecute you, they will hate you for being like Christ, but in the end, it is that difference that they will ultimately recognize. And in the end of the, and when, when God shows up, it will be those reasons for which they give praise to God and glory to God. We can think about our history and find a few examples of what we're talking about here. And, and though he certainly wasn't necessarily part of the Christian church, think about what you know about Gandhi and the movement that he led in India and the peaceful revolution, right? And, and Martin Luther King in our, in our society, in our history was the same way. Revolution of nonviolence that we live out and, and we confront evil and powers and injustices, but we do so in a peaceful way, not a non-confrontational way. And ultimately, that does bring about change. It draws attention to the injustices in the world, and people are moved to make changes themselves rather than having to force it upon them. There's a theologian and professor, his name is Miroslav Volf, spelled V-O-L-F. And he says this, he says, what we should learn from the text, 1 Peter, is not, of course, to keep our mouths shut and hands folded but to make our rhetoric and action more modest so that they become more effective. As we strive for social change, First Peter nudges us to drop the pen that scripts master narratives. That is, we don't need to worry about the grand story of the world and trying to shape them or legislate them or, or force them into a different story. It instead encourages us to give account of the living hope in God and God's future to abandon the project of reshaping society from the ground up and instead do as much good as we can from where we are at the time we are there, to suffer injustice and bless the unjust rather than perpetrating violence by repaying evil for evil or abuse for abuse, and to replace the anger of frustration with the joy of expectation. What happens all too often and always is that when we set ourselves up against the culture, and we fight to transform that culture. We, we argue with them. We, we pass rules and, and we say, look, it says this in here. You've got to act this way. What happens? You just get angry and we get frustrated, right? And there's no good that comes from there. And so what Miroslav Volf, he's, he coined this phrase. He says that this is, what we're talking about is a soft difference. So that a hard difference would be, the, the hard difference is the arguing, is the we're trying to, compel you through force, whether it's violent or political or simply reason and ration and try to overpower your way of thinking, that's, a, that's sort of an attack mode. And that's a hard difference. We are different and you're going to be like us or we're going to have to reject you. That's a hard difference. And what Wolf says and what he says Peter, and I think rightly says Peter is encouraging his church to do is take up a position of soft difference. We are different. And we are going to show you and compel you and convince you by living an alternative way to becoming a different people. We are going to become the house of God, living in your midst. And then we're going to invite you to be part of it. The church, if lived out properly, ought to be so different and so amazing and compelling that people want to be part of it. And yes, there'll be part people that look and, and call us evildoers for whatever reason. They hate us. But there'll be others who look at it and say, that, I want that. There's something beautiful happening there. And I want to be part of that. If we think back even to the opening of the Gospels and, and John the Baptist's message, his words as he came onto the scene in, in the desert out by the Jordan was to repent. Right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent, repent, repent. And Jesus takes up that mantra. And we hear him say that all the time. The kingdom of heaven is 
at hand. And, and that is a call to rethink. There's something new happening here. Rethink, rethink. And it's not an arguing. It's simply saying, here it is. Jesus comes and says, here I am. This is what God looks like. I am God. This is what love and mercy and grace looks like. And there are people that hate him for it. And there are a lot of people who come and love him for it. And that's our model. That is what we as Christians ought to be. We ought to say to the world, there is a better way. Come join us. Not there is a better way. You've got to change the way you act. Come join us. Come be part of this community. Come live into the reality of the church. A few months ago, actually, we talked about the difference in the Greek understanding and the Hebrew understanding of learning and changing. Greeks, Roman Greek theology and sociology said, we teach you and we keep telling you what to do and eventually you're going to go out and do it. The Hebrew understanding that the church takes up and inherits is we do differently and then we start to think differently. And a soft difference says, here's the way we act. Come be part of us. Come act this way with us. And what we find, and I can attest to this over and over and over as we've done that in our communities in the past, as we just invite people to come in and ask questions and be part and come hang out for a cookout and come have a cup cup of coffee and we're not preaching at you, just come live life with us. What happens is they understand, hey, there's something going on here. And I have watched person after person change the way they think about God because they've become part of the community. They've connected with the people of God and they realize there's a difference and they want to be part of it. That is compelling. And that is what Peter is asking us to do, to take up a position of soft difference. We are exiles. And we need to understand that. This is, this is the fundamental understanding that the church has had for thousands of years, or at least did have thousands of years ago, that I think a lot of us have failed to reconcile and recognize. We are exiles and foreigners in a foreign land. We are expatriates. We belong to a different nation. And that's what Peter says here as he's talking at the end of that scripture that we used a couple months ago. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. That is our nation. That is our identity. And so we have a dual citizenship and we need to understand to the extent that we are Christian, that we are God's people. We are different. We are set apart. The term ecclesia, which becomes the term for church in the New Testament, literally means the called out ones the assembly, the people that are pulled apart out of the, the larger nation, we are different. We ought to act different, live different, think different. God has a nation and we are part of it. And what it is hard, and this is, get your, pull your toes back, okay? <laughs> what is hard for us to understand is that God has a nation, we are part of it. It did not start 244 years ago in Philadelphia. It started 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And as Americans, that's a difficult message to hear. And so if that puts you on edge this morning, I'm there with you. We need to wrestle with Peter's truth there. To what extent do we as the church need to look different than America? How do we interact? How do we butt up against? How do we take up a position of soft difference? How do we affect the change we want to see in the world in a way that's Christ-like? To give up the softness of our difference would be to sacrifice our identity in Christ. I want you to really understand that statement because it's profound. To the extent that we try to, through coercion, 
violence, argumentation, try to change the world around us. Think about how Christ acted. Think about how he did it. He did it through love and mercy and invitation. He certainly spoke the difference. We certainly, we have to make value judgments. We have to. I'm not saying that we are not. That's how we're different. We do say to the world, this is not right. But we don't say this is not right by saying you're wrong. We say this is not right by saying this is, this is, this is right. We show them what is right. And to the extent that we don't act like Christ and instead try to take up argumentation and conflict with the world, we sacrifice our identity with Christ. We become unlike Christ. We're no longer the church. And that one hurts, especially in a world in which it's so easy to feel, oh, I got to go vote on this legislator because he's going to make the law that conforms to my religious conviction. I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't know what the answer is there. Peter, on the far end of the soft difference, would say, that's, that's probably not the best way to do it, right? There's a story, I love this story. It was a couple, I'm gonna take, we're just gonna get real, real controversial today, right? We're gonna talk about abortion for a minute. I think most of us probably would agree that abortion in most, if not all instances, is, is abhorrent. So how do we affect our world? How do we make a change in the world by living a soft difference as opposed to a hard difference? There was a couple who felt strongly that way. And they came in contact with a young woman about to, uh, well, not yet about to have birth, but she was pregnant. And she was wrestling with what to do because she was not in position economically. She didn't have a support system. She was not able to care for this child. And so it was a problem for her. And this is not uh, uncommon, right? Um, a, a lot of the women who are, are facing this choice are in similar circumstances. And so they decided rather than yelling at her and trying to convince her through arguments or a moral code that this is the wrong thing to do, that they were going to support her. And so they went to her and said, we know that uh, you're having this trouble and this, uh, you're wrestling with this issue. And so we want, to, uh, we want to support you. And so we have a spare bedroom, our kids are gone. We want you to come live with us and we will be your support system if you want to keep this child. And so she took them up on it. And the child was born, and this couple became like grandparents to that child and developed a relationship with the mother and soon you know, fell in love with them, and, and they fell in love with this couple. And they would watch the kid as she would go to work, and she decided that she wanted to better herself. She wanted to go to nursing school. So the couple had some extra cash laying around through their retirement, and they paid for her to go to nursing school and watch the kid, what had become their grandchild, while she did. And as when the, the child grew up and she went off to school and she was successful in life, the mother, uh, who was now a nurse, stayed with that couple. And as they grew older and became more frail, they had a nurse living with them to take care. And so the roles reversed. Now, does that happen in every scenario? No, but it's a beautiful picture of what can happen when the church says, instead of, it's illegal, you can't do it, God hates you, says, we love you. And we want to surround you and care for you and become the place that you can understand God's love and live into the... I mean, that, that woman was a mother. Had she made another decision, she would not be a mother. Her identity, a portion of her identity, was wrapped up in that decision. And because the church was the church and offered love and support in that instance, she was able to live into not only motherhood, but the calling to be a nurse, the calling to family, calling to community, and there was blessing beyond the imagination as a result of that. 
That is just a small picture of what the church ought to be. When we step back, if we, Emmanuel as a community, would step back and say, Zanesville, we're just going to figure out how to love you better. We are going to love each other well. We're going to follow what Jesus has told us to do. We're going to do that for each other. And anyone who wants to come join us can. Come on. We, we will be shocked at what happens. I guarantee it. Because every time it's ever happened, the church has exploded. That's what was so compelling to the early church. People saw them caring for widows and orphans and said there's something different about those people. When, when plagues came through, the church, I've mentioned this before, they would walk, literally walk through the streets and pick up the sick and take them back and care for them at great risk to themselves. And as that passed, people had seen that and said, they're taking care of our family that we put. People would literally put their family members on the street so that they weren't in the house and they wouldn't get sick. They basically put them out there to die. And what the church says is, well, your family doesn't love you, but we're going to be your new family. We're going to take care of you. And if, I mean, think about, put yourself outside these walls. If you saw that, is that not something you want to be part of? Isn't that ultimately what we all want? To be loved and cared for and to belong, to be accepted, and to know that the God of the world, the creator, feels that way about us? It's our job as the church to, to show that to the world. And to the extent that we fail to pick up soft difference and instead pick up a hard difference and conflict, we don't give that picture to, to the world. We compromise, we lose our identity in Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your son and for the sacrifices that you have made, the most of which, or the highest of which, of course, is your son on the cross. We thank you that through that act that we can come before you, that we can enter into a relationship with you, that we can take our identity from him and from you. We ask that you would give us rest and peace and knowledge that we are who we are because of who you say we are. Give us the wisdom and the knowledge to be able to look to Jesus and to define ourselves in that way rather than looking at the world and saying, we are not that and we must shun and reject that. Help us to rest and be strong in Jesus so that we may turn to the world in an attitude of service and love and present to the world the love and grace and mercy that you have for it. Help us to be your hands and feet. We ask this in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit, trusting that you will do all these things. Amen.